that's all right. It really is. I'm going to pray. And we're just going to trust God. It's as simple as that. It's, it really, we don't want to overcomplicate things. So if you wouldn't mind, if you just close your eyes. Father, I thank you. Just as a father who so loves his children, that is who you are to us. And I thank you, you meet us exactly where we are, but your vision for us has never changed. You see it all, O oh Lord. You see it all. You see us individually. You know every challenge, every circumstance. And oh Lord, you intercede on our behalf. And we just begin from that place as we call out to you, our Lord, our very shepherd who makes a way for us. And we thank you. We thank you. Amen. Amen. So this is a part two, and I am, didn't change my mind. I am going to speak about healing. And I am not going to make a long recap, but I'm going to give you a very brief recap because I think it is important to, and I ex explicitly segmented out what I did last week as a foundation and as a recap, you know, one of the main things that I wanted to have challenge us to maybe even probably, if it was like for me what had happened to me, it challenges your very theology and thoughts of exactly how we fit into God's plan and what provision he's made for us. And that challenge is this, that in the atonement that there is a sin-bearing and a sick-bearing nature to that. And the implications of that very sentence that I just said to you, if you really start to begin to ponder and ruminate and meditate on it, is quite profound. You know, because it gets very much to the core of you asking for yourself an understanding of how we relate to God what is his plan? What is his original intention for me? It necessarily has an implication that will challenge your very thought about how physical healing fits into his plan and his very will for us as his children. And we went over last week, and we, as part of that, you know, looked at Matthew chapter 8 as it referred back to Isaiah 53 and saw that the sickness-bearing aspect of the atonement was side-by-side side with the sin-bearing nature. And in application in Matthew chapter 8, as it interpreted the scripture of Isaiah 53, you know, the first instance as Matthew 8 started out, there was a leper who came to Jesus, and his request, which was obvious, was for healing. But he asked of the Lord, if you are willing. 
And Jesus had to respond to correct his very thought and understanding of who Jesus was to him and said, I am willing. That that's where it began in that very exchange of healing, of a correction of the very intention of how a leper would view the Lord in his attitude to sickness. It was not a question that, well, it was, many people think about questions of power. And there is hardly a person when they think of God, but by its very nature and the very notion of God, nobody questions the power. They always question the intention and the will. And that's why it is so simple and yet so profound for us individually that to approach God and the question, any question with regard to healing and to have some measure of a basis for you to stand and to believe that indeed he is, that will change fundamentally how you approach healing. So that was last week. His intention has to be established at some level before faith and belief can actually be part of the equation. And see, God's intention, and it really is about his intention as we establish our belief system, our very theology, what we think of God, it's to understand his very intention. And that's why, and I cannot get into this, but the way he relates to people is on the basis of covenant, and we are under the new covenant. And if you look and you were to survey in the context of the new covenant now, because we spent some time in Isaiah 53 in the old prophesying to the new, healing is very much a part of his plan. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it speaks of the diversities of gifts by the same spirit. And while I will not go into them particularly, with respect to healing, we know that there are aspects of these gifts that are in play, things of words of knowledge, faith. That's such an amazing, I wish I could actually talk about that one. A gift of faith, gifts of healing, actually gifts of healings, working of miracles. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. James 5. Clayton just referenced that, so I don't need to go through that. This is now, if you think about God's provision in terms of local bodies, the structure, authority structures for his people, of which they come in under a covering, now a further provision for healing comes forth that call for the elders. It's not the oil that will heal them. It's the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up. Mark chapter 16 in the Great Commission, it speaks of healing as one of the signs following for those who believe. So you would have to actually intentionally begin to exclude all of these references to healing and to say that this is actually not part of what we should expect of our actual experience, which is your life. I'm not talking about theory. I've said this to many people. See, Christianity to many is theory. But Christianity at some point has to impact your real life, real decisions, real beliefs, real steps that you take for your life, and only then, when it actually makes an impact on your decisions, that you actually see what do you believe. I'm not talking theory. The truths, and this is just a sample, there are more, but the truths of what is spoken of in the context of the New Testament, reflective of the New Covenant, quite frankly, they're very inconvenient. 
Because they're there, you actually have to intentionally purpose your heart and your mind to ignore them. You can't just sit there and say, I see you, but not really. It's incredibly inconvenient. So we're going to start today and talk about this from a very real and honest perspective. I have this term I've tossed, I've created this term in my house. There's this thing called the honesty table. Many of you have not been to my house. And at the honesty table, I joke that maybe that just means I could say whatever I want as the highest authority in my house. And there is an element of truth to that, but I try and have some measure of restraint. But the honesty table is where truth is now the goal. Because there are niceties about tiptoeing about issues, about realities, about little quirks, that we just don't want to go there. But when you actually get to the honesty table and actually have an opportunity to share and express and actually begin to deal with the issue that everybody knows have to be dealt with, ah, that's real life now. And see, here's the honesty table and what is real life. There has been so great of a disappointment for many with respect to healing. I have had that too. And I applaud for many of you who have ventured down this path of healing. You've put yourselves out there. You've actually dared to believe actually dared to actually take God at his word. And there has been disappointment too often. Why? Because people have prayed for others and they have not been healed. People have died because they have not been healed when people were putting themselves out there on the limb of faith, daring to be disappointed, believing, and yet it has not happened. I cannot speak about healing with addressing that as a real part of our walk. So this disappointment has real consequences. And you have to internalize something, oftentimes that's called blame. And quite typically, if you really want to get real about it, there's two aspects that people get disappointed with. Number one, God. Number two, yourself. Maybe I didn't have enough faith. You hear those words echo in your mind. Maybe I didn't do enough to have my prayer registered in the halls of God. That's just being real, isn't it? Because the word says what it says, and it's inconvenient to read it, and you put it into practice putting yourselves out there, and the result isn't in accordance of what you were hoping for. And now you have to have an accounting. And that accounting oftentimes is one of question of God's intention, which we're trying to address both last week and this week, but also with an introspective criticism of yourself and your failures, which I will just say, there's so much you can get down in that hole. So my best and most honest response as I sit at the honesty table speaking to those that have put themselves out there is this. Embrace it. 
Embrace that failure, and here's why. Any focus upon the failings or the disappointments of God or the failures in yourself for any of a host of reasons is to lose focus on one thing, the enemy. Any amount of thought and energy, emotional or otherwise, that you put upon that question and the focus is lost upon the reality that there is an enemy in this equation and sickness whether I am disappointed in the past or not, still is casting a very dark shadow of suffering on too many. And that is about as real as it gets. Because as much as I say, I'm out, this hasn't worked the way I thought, or maybe I just don't understand it, I'm out, the reality is people are still sick, people are still dying, And it would be way too easy to just say, yeah, this healing thing, no. No. It's not true. That absolves us of all responsibility. But the word of God dares us to believe. It actually dares you to believe. So we're going to talk about that, belief. And I'm going to put to you one, this is just one, Speaking on healing, we could speak for months, but I want to focus on one with respect to belief, with respect to healing, and it is this. The very same Holy Spirit who did all of Christ's miracles is still in the church and has the same life-giving power. That is the reason that we ought to challenge ourselves in our belief. In John 14, verses 16 and 17, it says this, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And Clayton's already covered this, but that word another, it's alos in the Greek which means another of the same sort. It's not heteros, which we kind of understand hetero. That would be another of a different sort, which is why, as Clayton already mentioned with respect to the Holy Spirit, it is very accurate for you to say that the Holy Spirit will be to you everything I have been to you, as Jesus speaking that sentence. And this Holy Spirit, if we move on, and these are well-known scriptures, but it does push the point of exactly what we believe. Acts 10.38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil because God was with him. Acts 1, verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So the Holy Spirit is in you. And my statement of belief and of faith, of challenge, if you will, is that that very same Holy Spirit who enabled Christ to do all his miracles is still in the church, has the same life-giving power, and he's in you. That is an inconvenient truth. 
So if you would, we're going to take a look at Romans chapter 8, and I don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to skip a few things. But I'm going to read a little bit from Romans chapter 8 at about verse 5. I'm just going to read a few. I have actually more, but I'm just going to read a part of it. And it says this. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity, hatred actually, against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. I won't read the rest. The reason why I read this part. The context of this, it's freedom from the sin nature. This is after he spoke about freedom from the law. And it's setting forth this very clear distinction in you because you just have to deal with the you. What are you? Who are you? And there is a clear distinction being set forth in this freedom from the sin nature that there is the flesh and there is the spirit. And it assumes that there is, in freedom from sin, that there is no intermingling at all. What is flesh is rendered and reckoned dead, and of the spirit, that's the way we live. And now, as a context, in Romans 8, verse 11, it says this, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, there are two different words that I don't want you to confuse here. One is dead, and it's said twice. Raised Jesus from the dead twice. And that word is necros, which, as you can imagine, dead. It's dead. But there's this other word for mortal that is not necros, it's thnetos. And that means subject to death. So this verse is not talking about the ultimate redemption of your body at the end when the incorruptible has now replaced corruptible. It's not talking about that. This is your mortal body, your physical bodies that are subject to death that your spirit who dwells in you will give life to. And that's inside out. Please understand. Inside out, your spirit. From that same life-giving power that enabled Jesus to do all of his miracles, resides in you, and it's from there gives life to your mortal bodies. And I'm sure you're asking me now, how? That's actually what happens. And now how? So it goes on to say in Romans, and I'm not going to cover this, but Romans 8, verses 18 to 25, it talks about you know, one of some Bibles say it's from suffering to glory. It actually talks about creation, this whole notion that creation is groaning until the sons of God would be revealed. Why? Because the creation is subject to decay. And it literally groans because we know what decay is. And then it says in verse 26, which I want to spend some time on Romans 8, it says, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. 
Now, that's a relatively innocuous verse, you might say to yourself. I mean, who's going to argue that? I mean, if you were to say, you know, God's pretty good, and he's going to help you in your weakness, nobody is going to argue with you about that. Nobody. It's like, well, I kind of assume that. I mean, I read it, it's like, oh, that's just, that's added to the 30 other verses I know that God's just good, and he's going to help me. The Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. And that word for weaknesses is asthenia, which the most common, for real Greek scholars, they know that that, the most common translation of that is sickness. But we all already kind of covered that because in Romans 8.17, which was a prophetic or an interpretation of what was prophetically laid out in Isaiah 700 years prior to Jesus walking on this earth and healing people, So that, that, that in verse 17, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying he himself took our infirmities, and that word infirmities is asthenia, and bore our sicknesses. So now if you go back to Romans 8.26, it's saying to you that the Spirit also helps in our sicknesses. It's just repeating, in a sense, what is already been stated as a prophetic fulfillment of Isaiah 53. And in Matthew 8, 17, that word took, and we spent a lot of time on the burden that Jesus carried, but that word took is lambano, which simply means to take up a thing to be carried, to take in order to carry away. We spent some time about Isaiah 53, talking about NASA and the scapegoat carrying the sin from the people as a prophetic as a little a picture and symbolism of exactly what Jesus did when, as John said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus did, as he healed, as he healed people, took up a thing to be carried, took sickness from people, and then they were healed. Now, going back to Romans 8.26, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, and that word helps is a little word, but in the Greek, it is not little. It's sunanti lambanomai is the base word. Sunanti lambanomai is actually the base on that verb lambano, which is to take up as Jesus took sickness. But it adds two prefixes, sun and anti. And sun means together with, anti, as you would expect, against, and lambano, to take hold of. And if you actually put all of those pieces together, what helps means in Romans 8.26 is this. The Holy Spirit takes hold against our sicknesses together with us. That's what it means. And we just read it, well, it helps. Now let's unpack this a little bit because this is potentially confirming to what you actually already know. But I think is actually going to help you to understand exactly what it's like to have the Holy Spirit, all that same life-giving power that enabled Christ to do his miracles now resides on us and now he's saying the Holy Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. Sunanti lambanomai. You see... The Holy Spirit takes residence in every believer. 
Through the baptism of the Holy Spirit power, now it becomes available in the Spirit. And as we know, because it's us individually, the Holy Spirit is not alone. There's another person involved. It's called me. Right? I hope you have a me or a self. We're pretty good at being selfish. And that self is your soul or the flesh, right? And that soul, I mentioned this in past, you know, that word is suke, which is where psychology comes from. And that's your seat of personality. That's really the embodiment of self. So if you imagine, if you will, you have the Holy Spirit, life-giving power, resident in you, and I also now have my soul, which is another party in me, and yet there is sickness in the body. I have in me a spirit, the Holy Spirit. Who is me is my soul, resident in a body of which is sick. So Sananti Lambanamai speaks of a partnership of me in my soul with the Holy Spirit of which retains life-giving power. That word helps. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. And it's in Luke chapter 10, verse 40. And if you could just set aside your preconceived notions about what this passage means, it's the account of Martha and Mary. And it says in verse 40, But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. That's that same word, based. Sananti Lambanomai. And what is embodied and pictured in this real account of Martha, and as I said, put aside about what was the right thing as that passage is, the context is talking about. Just, but just understand what that word helps means. Is that Martha was focused on something that was, she was tasked to do and was focused upon doing, and she needed help. And was requesting Jesus, tell Mary to help me. That gives you a sense of what Sananti Lambanamai means, which is the spirit saying, I'm taking hold against sickness in your body together with you. And there's an element, and I don't want to go spend too much time here, but there's an element of our soul that impedes, as we know, the working of the spirit. Because there are choices not the least of which is a little word called belief. The degree to which I lack faith, I inhibit the fullness of the Spirit in me. That's just an example. So there is a partnership that we can play with the Holy Spirit to actually helping against sickness in our bodies. And I'm going to leave this with you If you simply think of it this way, 
the soul and spirit as one. The soul, your soul, and the spirit as one. And John 15, verse 7, I think this is something you would already subscribe to as being a part of not only the process that we go through in our Christian experience in the real life that we live, is that if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Implicit in this, in this abiding, abide in me, let my words abide in, in you, is that it speaks of the soul, you, the self, being intimately tied in, subscribing to his will of the spirit and now becoming one. And now in that context, you can understand that the spirit is now free to touch, to accomplish. We think of that very easy in the context of ministry, of allowing the spirit to break out of your soul man to be able to touch on the laying of hands. This is talking about an individual context now. But the same principle applies. The degree to which there is agreement between me and the spirit dictates the extent of the spirit being able to accomplish what it desires to do. And it bears noting, and you think about the soul and spirit becomes one, it is helpful to understand what is exactly the spirit about. What, what is he about? That's a great question. And I will say this as an introductory comment to us talking about this a little bit. In this partnering, no one uses the Holy Spirit. No one uses the Holy Spirit. We partner, we join with him, but no one dictates and uses the Holy Spirit. I just want you to understand that as a very simple framework. You see, John 10, verse 10, we all know this, and this is where the Bible gets really inconvenient again because it challenges your thinking. And we know this. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, or, and to destroy. And he's already called the thief, kleptes, right? And, well, what does thieves do? They steal. To kill, we know in John 8, 44, it says, you are, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Murderers kill. With respect to destruction, Revelations 9, verse 11, it says, And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon, the destroyer. That is a proper noun. The destroyer destroys. And I mentioned beginning and dealing with it at the honesty table. If you focus in your mind of disappointment in God or the failings in yourself, you neglect the one, the enemy, the destroyer that is still at work. And it is too, and actually leads you to error to try and humanize the destroyer. 
You cannot do that. To understand the destroyer is to understand that he is about one thing, destruction. It's his passion. On particularly successful days, he does not say, I'm pretty good. It's like if you were to ask him, you've destroyed a lot. You've been quite victorious in your destruction. At the end of the day, what would you like to do? Destroy. The destroyer destroys. And I love this because you can get all religious on me and say, you know, you're focusing too much on the enemy. But you cannot even appreciate the second part of the verse, which is, I have come. Of the thief, of the murderer, of the destroyer who steals, kills, and destroys, unapologetically, passionately, singular focused. And now Jesus says, I have come. The King James Version actually puts it even better to me, in my opinion. It says, I am come. I am come. So 1 John 3, 8, you've heard this. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So if you just start putting one plus one together, Jesus says, I have come. The devil has been working for the beginning, stealing, killing, and destroying. But now I have come. I have been manifest to destroy the destroyer's work. The destroyer destroys. I came to destroy the destroyer's work. And I went through this exercise simply to challenge you and actually begin to see the reality of your situation, which is that in as much as the enemy is 100% focused on stealing, killing, and destroying, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is exactly counter to that. Every destruction, every work of destruction, he is looking to destroy. You have to see this from the equality of intention and focus. In as much as the enemy is focused on destruction, Jesus, who has now come through the Holy Spirit with life-giving power, is all about destroying the destroyer's work. You cannot have one without the other. He wants to do it. The Holy Spirit, you say, what is the Holy Spirit about that? It's that, to destroy the destroyer's work. He wants to do it. He's not by intention, by nature, he desires to bring life. and yet in partnership. Just asking that we believe and that we become one in that partnership. 
I'm just going to end on this quote again by A.W. Tozer from God's Pursuit of Man. And I read part of it last week, but there's another part, and we're going to just read this, and, and then we'll pray. But for all our fears, we are not alone. Our trouble is that we think of ourselves as being alone. Let us correct the error by thinking of ourselves as standing by the bank of a full-flowing river. Then let us think of that river as being none else but God himself. We glance to our left and see the river coming full out of our past. We look to the right and see it flowing on into our future. But we see also that it is flowing through our present And in our today, it is the same as it was in our yesterday. Not less than, not different from, but the very same river, one unbroken continuum, undiminished, active, and strong as it moves sovereignly into our tomorrow. That is the Holy Spirit's work. The same yesterday, today, and forever. The same Spirit that enabled Christ to do his life-giving miracles because of his life-giving power. That same spirit resides in us and desires partnership, unity in partnership to do the same in us today. So we're just going to pray. I'm just going to end with a prayer. We're trusting God for more healing. Why? Because people are sick. We know we can't do it. There's nothing in and of ourselves that can do it other than the Holy Spirit. Man does not heal. He does. He gives life. So if you would, just close your eyes and we're just going to spend... Not long. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the price that you paid. You took it all. Sickness, disease, pain, as well as our sin. You took it upon yourself that we need not carry it. And the Holy Spirit who resides in us, fully imbued with life-giving power, the same as yesterday, the same in the future, but most certainly today, resides in us. And in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, In the name of Jesus, you do, Holy Spirit, what you've done from the beginning, and we expect you to continue to do that in our midst, in our bodies today, to give life. And I speak life over your people right now. Life. By you, Holy Spirit. And I pray for us, each of us, that the notion of partnership would begin to ring 
and beckon and to call. I pray that in the name of Jesus. Holy Spirit, be free. Be free amongst us as we partner with you. I thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen.